0: Michael McConnell started writing crime stories in the second grade. His father loved Sherlock Holmes and watched old remakes, so crime fiction has always been an influence for him. He wrote his first novel, Maelstrom, which was released in October 2007 and got excellent reviews. Maelstrom is a 2008 Ned Kelly nominee for Best First Novel. His second novel, Splinter, was launched in July 2008. Both of his books are crime fiction. Michael studied international relations. He and ancient history at the University of Sydney and was exposed to the world of diplomats. He went into law enforcement, worked on doors at nightclubs, did corporate security work and worked at Rail Corp. As a transit officer, Michael lives on the central coast with his wife. So, Michael, thank you for joining us today.
1: That's perfectly all right. How are you?
0: Good, good. And yourself?
1: Not too bad, not too bad.
0: So tell us, why did you start getting into crime fiction specifically?
1: I think originally uh, it was because of three reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, first off, because I was really drawn to the sense of atmosphere that you get uniquely from a crime novel, well, from 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 the really good crime novels that are out there. Um, you know, I, I, w- I, w- I started reading uh, novel- novelists like uh, Lee Child mm-hmm. and... Uh, uh, Dean Coons and uh, Robert Ellis and so forth. And I, I love the way they drew you into uh, the worlds that they had created. The sense of atmosphere was really palpable, really not always dark, but always textured and always very tangible mm-hmm. and very, you could really, really sense it and you really put yourself into it. Uh, second was flexibility. Of novels. I really love the way, especially, especially with Lee Child. I think more than any other uh, crime writer that I can think of, right. he was able to work into his novels such a, a broad scope. Especially in his Jack Reacher series, he was able to to work such a broad scope of stories and ideas and characters into that series. Mm. And one wasn't one was one was like the other in some ways the the same thing that kept that made you enjoy one book kept you coming back for more mm-hmm. but there was always that sense that something uh completely different could happen in this novel and then finally realism i think especially uh, for myself and for a lot of people crime fiction is more accessible than perhaps some other types of fiction because it's so realistic you can see the things happening that happen in a crime novel, perhaps more than you could in, say, something like speculative fiction, which is a fantastic genre, but it's a little bit easier to see somebody kidnapping someone else than somebody suddenly sprouting uh, two heads and sick sure. martian. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, basically, that's why, anyway. That's why I well, enjoyed
0: it. Would you say you've got an overactive imagination or an obsession with all things criminal, <laughs> which <laughs> I'm assuming you might have to have that in crime writing?
1: Yes, yes, definitely. Uh, I've always had that. I've always, I've always been. It wasn't sort of of great benefit to me in in high school. I've always been a, a daydreamer. I've always been somebody who really enjoys getting caught up in an idea, in a concept, and really just playing it out in my mind. Uh, I think over time, as I actually got seriously into writing. Mm. as opposed to just as a hobby. I think that was really important for the evolution of storylines, um, for realism, um, and especially especially for coherency of characters, especially for that. Mm. I had to believe these characters were real, and they had to be real to me, if they were going to have that coherent sense, if they were going to always be consistent to themselves. Mm. So, I, yeah, I think it's definitely a, a requirement um, so crime writing, definitely.
0: You say you have to believe your characters are real, and one of your main characters is a woman, Sarah Riley. Mm. So um, was it? Is it hard writing about a woman? <sighs>
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> I get this a lot. So. Yes. <laughs> um, n- no, no, surprisingly not. Okay. It's, it's, it's really not. I really... Uh, the, when, when Sarah... When Sarah was born, uh, so to speak, mm. it was a very, very easy transition from um, pure uh, fantasy into a quasi-realistic uh, existence in my mind. Mm. No, she was she was she was very, very easy to uh, to write from. Uh, basically, I had met. Uh, An FBI agent, a very famous FBI agent in the United States by the name of Candace DeLong. Mm. She had uh, written her memoirs after, I think it was about 15 or 20 years in the FBI. And she's very, very similar to the character that I've invented in Sarah. She isn't exactly the same. Mm. Uh, but it certainly made it a lot easier meeting this person and sort of saying to myself, yes, these people really do exist. They're mm, out there. Mm. You know, these women who will kick down doors, jump through, arrest serial killers. You know, they're, they're out there. She did it on, on, on multiple occasions.
2: So, mm. Uh, no, no, it was, it
1: was, um, it, 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 it was, it really wasn't that hard. It really wasn't that hard. In, in the case of Sarah, I think if you ask me tomorrow to come up with a new female character, just, at the drop of a hat, I think it, it would take a little bit of time. Mm. Uh, it took a little bit longer to come up with Sarah's uh, new partner in the second novel in the series, Splinter. Mm. It took a little bit of time to come up with her new partner, uh, which was a, a female character. So, yeah, it, it was in Sarah's case it was easy. In any other case, I think it was um, it would be more of a process.
0: How did you meet Candace?
1: I was in the United States, and she was doing a book signing at, where was it? I think it was uh, Barnes & Noble. And it was sort of a disappointing situation, I think, for her, because there weren't very many people there. Right. And it was sort of, it was in Kansas. Uh, So it was sort of, there weren't too many, there were about five or six people who were lined up, and I deliberately waited till the end and it, as one person came in, I'd let them in front of me so I would be the last person there. And then when I was the last person there, I basically just peppered her with questions and right. and, and bothered her and <laughs> spoke to her and, and, no, she was very kind and very generous with her, with her time and mm. uh, with her stories and so on. So that was fantastic.
0: So when did you actually start thinking, you know, I want to be a writer, you know what I mean? When did that occur to you that that's something that you really wanted to pursue?
1: I think probably uh, sometime around 7th or 8th grade oh. where I had a huge crush on a girl by the name of Melissa McKay <laughs> in uh, high school and I used to write her these epic love letters. Oh,
0: my God. <laughs> and we're
1: we're talking epistles. We're talking um, pure missives of absolute devotion. Right. And, uh, yeah, I, I basically just... Uh, i- I, enjoy, I found that I enjoyed the act of writing mm. from doing that i found that I actually enjoyed the art of of converting ideas and thoughts uh, into the the written word basically and uh, as a result, I just started writing stories and originally it was just for myself it wasn't really for anybody else uh, I really enjoyed a lot of science fiction at that time. so And as science fiction sort of lends itself to short story writing, I did quite a few of those. And like I say, originally it was just for myself, my family, Mm. a few friends might have read it, but it wasn't really sort of something that I took seriously for a very, very long time.
0: Mm. Then as an adult, when did you sort of decide to make a go of it and actually start writing your first novel? Um,
1: That that was... uh, There wasn't really a single point Mm. where it sort of, you know, it it changed over. I think uh, when it became something that I took more seriously was definitely when a friend of mine met uh, Sir Anthony, who is my literary agent, at a wedding of all places. And uh, this is a very, very good friend. And uh, uh, she basically agreed after much lobbying to to read this manuscript. Mm. And when I submitted it to her, I really didn't think there was much chance of, right. of being of being accepted because you know sell was you know pretty major a, mm. as the agents go She's she's pretty much the number one, mm-hmm. number one agent in australia um, so when when she wrote back and she said yes that she was interested in in, in working in the manuscript and working with me, then that, I think that was the point at which I thought, well, this is not just a hobby anymore; this is something that I can actually pursue.
0: Right, and I have to ask, what happened with Melissa McKay? Did she enjoy getting your letters? <laughs>
1: I don't think so, because she broke <laughs> up with me. I think maybe I wrote to her too much or something. <laughs> um, no, 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 that didn't work out. That didn't work out, unfortunately. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so
0: in Maelstrom, you have a character, the violet-eyed man. Is mm. is that based on a real person at all, or how did you come up with that character? Um.
1: Yes, that is. Uh, basically, the character of Bill Gunther is based more or less on a real serial killer by the name of Dennis Rader, who is more commonly known in the United States as the BTK killer,
2: wow.
1: or Blind Torture Kill. Mm. Uh, killer. Not a terribly nice uh, yeah. fellow. He was unusual in the sense that for a period of time, an extensive period of time, a number of years, he actually managed to conquer his desire to kill people. Uh, he he had set out as a young man to do these serial killings, these incredibly hideous, cruel, mm. sadistic killings, and then at some point, after a couple of years, he just stopped, and mm. he stopped for approximately, I think it was about fifteen years, fifteen to twenty years. It was a, it was a significant period of time. Mm. And then, for some reason, I can't remember exactly what it was, he started again. He he, he started doing the same thing, and he started contacting the authorities and taunting them mm. with the fact that he had managed to get away. And it turned out to be a very bad idea for him, because mm. uh, he re- really wasn't up on the way that comu- computer technology had mm. advanced and computer forensics had advanced, and they were able to find him in that way. But. I was really impressed. Well, impressed is not the right word. I was intrigued by the way he was so in control of his his pathology, mm. his driving, his driving motivation to kill. He he did master it for a very long time, and I thought, really, that that made him even more of a frightening serial killer because he wasn't driven by it. He wasn't going to. For a while there anyway, uh, for a very long time, he wasn't going to lose control in a way that would allow law enforcement to more easily track and capture him. And this was the kind of fellow who had the kind of mentality who could become a very, very serious uh, problem for law enforcement if he had sort of backed up that control with a little bit of knowledge. Mm. So really all I did was I just took the character of Dennis Rader and I made him a little bit worse in the sense that Mm. um, my character took the idea of killing more seriously. He had come up with a method by which he could kill an infinite number of people and never be caught, Mm. never even be known, never be detected. Uh, So really it was just a matter of equipping that character with the tangible knowledge that could very, very easily have been acquired by the plethora of, of, of true crime novels and forensic texts that are available
2: mm-hmm.
0: and yeah. with, with crime fiction, and particularly Maelstrom has lots of plot twists and um, you know lots of turns, do you when you're writing, do you mm-hmm. plot it out somehow organisationally
1: on a wall,
0: or how, how do you actually keep track and make sure it all fits in?
1: I have very patient editors. <laughs> <laughs> I have very patient editors in uh, Vanessa Radnich of, of Hashed and and Anthony, uh, which is you know really it's the it's the firewall that prevents um, sort of inconsistencies, mistakes, and and errors getting through. But in the beginning, really, it's 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 a combination of planning and spontaneity as well Mm. i think if you're going to write something that is going to strike the reader as being spontaneous then you have to be a little bit spontaneous with yourself Mm. you can only you can only plot so much Mm. and then when you're in the act of writing it and fleshing it out and making it a a real or quasi real events to you in your mind anyway Mm. i think things occur to you that before wouldn't have occurred to you, well, I could do this instead of that, and that's really unexpected.
2: Mm -hmm. But
1: it still follows more or less the same flow of the story that you had plotted out. I think that makes it uh, a little bit more interesting, a little bit more enjoyable. And really just the credibility comes in going back over it and reading it and making sure, because you can get so close to it, obviously, you can get so close to what you're writing that you completely lose track of of where you are and, and how... How realistic it really is, mm. so I think um, sort of taking a step back a little bit of time and then going through it and reading it and making sure that it that it flows, I think is really important. Mm.
0: What do you typically start with in your head as the idea the crime or, or the ending or the particu- or a particular plot, or what what 's the first thing that sort of starts germinating in your brain the villain.
1: Right. Always, always the villain. <laughs> okay. Always the villain. In the case of Maelstrom, mm. I came up with the idea when I was just sitting down one night, and I was thinking to myself, "What would be the the perfect serial killer?"
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And of course,
0: it, as you do on, when you're sitting down.
1: <laughs> <on>. <laughs> I, I had just finished. I, I just finished reading a novel. I can't remember which one it was, but it was really good, and I, I was really, I was really impressed by by the by the antagonist. I can't remember which one it was. I really wish I could right now, uh, but I I I did sort of get to the point. Where I started thinking to myself, okay, well. The serial killers are the perfect antagonist in any in any book. Their characters they can't really be reasoned with. They can't be to an extent completely understood. They can't be mapped out. They can't be predicted. So they have the elements of the professional and the amateur blended into their into their modus operandi of, of the way they do things. So it makes them incredibly incredibly dangerous. And I was thinking about writing a crime novel, but I didn't really know what to anchor it on. And I just started toying with the idea of what is or what would be or what could be the perfect serial killer. And it's a deceptive question because once you start thinking about that, you think to yourself, well, how do you define one? Is it a matter of body count or Mm -hmm. is it a matter of remaining undetected? Eventually, I reached the conclusion that it was a matter of remaining undetected, the ability to do what they do without being detected or even known. So then I really had to go about deciding, well, how? How is he going to do this? Mm. Uh, How is he going to do something that that technically would be impossible? So I basically just immersed myself in in forensic studies. I spoke to FBI agents at, at the public affairs office in Washington and basically just went about piecing together this villain, this this character. And I got a big break with reading about Dennis Rader, but after that I really had to equip him with a number of other facets of his personality. Uh, for instance, the uh, a lot of serial killers bring themselves undone because they need to kill in a particular way to gain a certain degree of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. In the case of Bill Gunther, I thought it would be much better if he was far more simple in the sense that he'd just like to see things die. Mm-hmm. He'd just like to see people die, and it didn't really matter how they died. That in itself, it's very deceptive because it seems so simple, but at the same time, it empowers him immensely because forensic uh, analysts, to a huge degree, rely upon these uh, killers following a pattern in order to track them, in order to map out their personalities. They would study the victimology. They would start with the target rather than with the, uh, with the killer himself. But in order... To understand the killer, if a killer went about killing anyone he pleased in any manner that he chose, mm. it would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to understand him, to track him, and to catch him. Mm. So, yeah, really, I start out with the villains. It was the same way in Splinter. I really wanted to come up with a character that would not just be uh, my protagonist, Sarah Riley's equal, but actually a little bit better than her, a bit smarter than her, a little bit more cunning, a little bit more ruthless than she is. Um, really, I wanted to set, set up a, a one-on-one encounter that really couldn't uh, effectively be one in the conventional sense. I wanted it to end in a way that wasn't conventional, that was a little bit more like real life. So, yeah, it was really just a matter of constructing the villains. That's where it started. So when
0: you construct the villains and do all this research into, you know, their psychology and, as you say, forensics, does that kind of fill your head with all sorts of stuff? Does it kind of <laughs> muck around with your daily thoughts?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's actually it's not very pleasant. Mm. I, I took a break after writing Maelstrom uh, for a, a number of months where I didn't actually want to write about... Uh, uh, crime stuff because mm. it, it, even though I did work in law enforcement, writing about serial killers and thinking about these things and analyzing these things and trying to understand these things is very, very different to anything that I'd done before. And as a result, it, it's, it's a little bit depressing because yeah. when you think that there really are these people out there who derive pleasure from destroying a human being mm. and they have no regard whatsoever for the repercussions of that act. They only concentrate and focus completely upon the enjoyment that they derive from it. Mm. And it's incredibly, incredibly upsetting. It's incredibly saddening to know that we aren't quite advanced enough as a species that we can't get away from that kind of Mm. reasonless brutality. Mm.
0: So how do you cope with that?
1: I, I read generally... Other things, I mm-hmm. I will go up and watch a, a comedy movie right, yes. on TV. I'll go upstairs and do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll I'll go play with our dog or with our cat mm-hmm. or I'll go out with my wife and I'll spend too much at the bookstore. Yes. Um, but, as you do. Um, I, I really just try to, to, to get away from that altogether. Mm-hmm. I, I think, and I compartmentalize it a lot too. When I start thinking about it, I get an, a good idea, a good... A grocery list of the things that I want to do. Mm. I set about go, going about doing it. I finish it off. I finish the edits off, and it's done, and that's it. Mm. And I literally, you know, I, I never go back. I I've never opened up a copy of uh, of Maelstrom or or Splinter and actually looked at it. Oh,
2: you know?
1: really? I've, I've I've never done it. I've never done it. Wow. So it's really just a, a matter of doing it, and then just moving on to the next project. How long so. after
0: Maelstrom did you write Splinter? And when you wrote Maelstrom, did you realise there was a second
1: book with Sarah in it? Well, I, I, I actually got a, a two-book deal mm-hmm. with Hachette right. that called for a specific timetable uh, of, of work to be completed yeah. so basically it, w- it was really a matter of months it was a matter of months after writing Maelstrom that I started and and completed very very quickly and Maelstrom took a long time to write Maelstrom took uh, oh gee I, I could honestly say probably about 18 months uh, right. to two years in total to write because I really didn't know what I was doing
2: yeah.
1: but Blinter was much, much, much faster. I actually had a good idea by then of what I was doing and and what it what it took to actually go about compiling a book and mm. and, and it out and writing it. And so how long did it was, that take to write? Yeah, about three months. Right. About three months. It, yeah. it was very, very quick. It, it, it really wasn't that long at all. Mm. Maybe a little bit long with edit, longer with edits. Maybe about four months in total, but mm. um, certainly no longer than that.
0: Mm. Mm. Great. So you said you worked in law enforcement. Can you tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about what you've done?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, I basically, I started out in private security. Mm-hmm. I was uh, working in corporate security for a while, and whilst I lived in the United States with my wife, I did a number of uh, security jobs over over there, everything from uh, basically from uh, nightclub work on the door... Uh, to uh, a little bit of corporate work, a little bit of private investigation work. It's much easier over there because they don't have quite as strict uh, licensing, which is... Not such a good thing, but it was it was easier for me at the time mm. while I was over there. And uh, when I came back here, mainly, corp-, mainly corporate stuff, uh, I worked uh, for a number of hotels and that sort of thing. And then I was a transit officer for a while. I went to work for Railcorp mm-hmm. and basically uh, worked on the trains in, in Sydney. And that was um, very, very enjoyable, very, very enjoyable job, mm. um, very, very... Um, Eye-opening in mm. a number of ways, uh, especially for exposure to um, to, to criminals. Uh, a lot, right. a lot of exposure to criminals. I mean, there is a good reason why the New South Wales Police didn't want to didn't want to effectively police the the, the railway system in New South Wales anymore. Right. and it's because it's a very, 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 very difficult job, uh, and uh, just dealing with the whole range of of offenders. Uh, every, everything from from minor assaults to uh, you know rapes, uh, se- sexual assaults,
2: mm. uh,
1: you name it, you know, malicious damage, everything. So basically, yeah, it, it was it was just a matter of, of sort of dealing with that and doing that, and it was a, a wonderful job and a wonderful experience. It really was.
0: Have you drawn much from your work in law enforcement and security in for your books?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, especially in constructing villains, I think i I really wanted to the thing, the thing about people who who have made crime their living so mm. to speak there are there are two very distinct types of people there are there are the amateurs, the enthusiastic amateurs, people who are actually more of a problem than professional criminals because they're not very predictable in the way that they act and the way that they deal with you. They're they're very, very spontaneous and very, very emotional and mm. very, very very you're far more likely in a situation when you're dealing with an offender who isn't a professional criminal to get into a hands on situation and actually have to arrest them and cuff them and, you know, actually uh, you know, get into a, a physical confrontation than with a, pr- a professional criminal. Right. I think when I worked out west, especially out sort of around Bankstown, Parramatta, and Blacktown, and so on, you very, very quickly understood that dealing with people who who were exposed to the law enforcement system would be far more cooperative. Always, especially yeah. with guys who would admit very... very and they, all, they would always do it. They'd always admit very, very quickly that they'd just gotten out of jail or they'd been in jail or, or they had a police record, that sort of thing. Right. They would always be far more cooperative because they knew the repercussions of of not being cooperative. Right. And they really weren't interested in any dramas. It was mm. a job to them. It wasn't personal. Mm. It wasn't something that they would get wrapped up in emotionally. Mm. They would be calm they would be collected. Whether you caught them uh, spraying graffiti somewhere or beating someone up, nine times out of ten, the professional criminal would just say, "Okay, where were we where were we off to?" Mm. Yeah, and that and that was it. So, yeah, it, it, it was it was helpful in constructing the sort of the mentality of 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 a criminal. And the way that they deal with law enforcement it was very mm. very helpful in that regard definitely
0: so when you are writing, tell me about your typical working day like are you writing on your next writing your next novel now
1: uh yes, I am actually okay. I'm working on a couple of projects at once mm. I, I i don't know if there is a typical working day, but mm. I, I really i really don't i mean when when you start writing full time mm. it's really it becomes a matter of you have to you become your own taskmaster, obviously, and you have to set your own goals and you have to really, really keep to them every single day. I actually find ironically that i mean everyone thinks it would be wonderful to write full time mm-hmm. and, and that that that's you know a goal for a lot of people, and it was certainly a goal for me for a long time because you, you think that it will be so much easier. Mm-hmm. The reality for me is that I work probably about three or four hours longer now Mm. than I ever did in a full-time job, without a doubt, because I I get up, I get my breakfast and I've already started,
2: Mm.
1: you know, and I will work um, through till, you know, on a typical day I'll probably stop around about the time that uh, my wife finishes work, Mm -hmm. other days I'll just work straight through. So you know, I can work straight through till about twelve at night or something like that. Wow. So yeah, and uh, you know, I'll generate something like ten thousand words of text, ten thousand, twelve thousand words of text a day. So, mm-hmm, yeah, I can. It's not all good text. <laughs> <laughs> it's not all good. A lot of it gets ends up on the um, cutting room floor. Yeah. But uh, no, I've, I've never had a problem with that. I can honestly say I've Jeez. never had writer's block. I've never sort of been been short for something to say. That's
0: great. So, and finally then, um, what advice would you give to people who want to do exactly what you're doing, become writers?
1: I think think they could avoid the same mistake I made and they could save themselves a lot of time if they could realise very, very early on that this is something that they would like to pursue seriously Mm -hmm. and to be serious about it. It really is just a matter of... I mean, there is a certain amount of luck involved, but if you know the market and if you know stories and you know what you enjoy and you can look at the market and say, okay, well, I see what's out there, but more importantly, I see what isn't out there. If you can do that and then go through the process of actually learning how to write a book very quickly Mm -hmm. and then study the process of getting representation getting published, uh, understanding publicity and that sort of thing, and actually taking active steps every day, just small little ordinary things to make it more likely that that will happen than their chances of of getting published and doing something serious with their writing. Just, it, 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 it... it cascades and it becomes um, a catalyst for for real success, actual success. Mm. So if they do that, if they go out of their way to meet people in the industry, go to book signings, go to... uh, um, to industry parties, to book launches, mm. and speak to people. You know, people are always very, very happy to, to speak to you. Some of the most approachable people in the world work in publishing, be they agents or, or, or publishers or editors, are fantastically nice people.
2: Mm.
1: So, um, yeah, really, it's just a matter of in, a person increasing their own chances. As some Sue said, cast a wide net. Mm. You do that, you increase your chances hugely.
0: Wonderful. And thank you for your advice and thank you for your time today, Michael.
1: Not at all. It was a great
0: pleasure. ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo. K H O
2: O.com. Thank you for listening.